0: the lions of liberty podcast here is your host your guide your shining beacon of liberty mark Clare.
1: welcome back in to the lions of liberty podcast Longtime fans of the show well i mean as long time as you can be I've only been going for six or seven months here, but, you know, fans of this show will know that I spend a lot of time talking about the bigger picture issues, talking about the philosophy of liberty, about ways libertarian societies could organize without the use of aggressive force to do so. And it seems like I live in a time warp because sometimes I get so immersed in all this philosophy stuff, as I should be. Because I do think that having a sound philosophy is the most important thing any of us can do before advancing any positions, before aiming for some sort of political goal. If it's not based in a sound philosophy, you really don't have that base that you need to truly change the way people think. You got that, right? You might get them on an issue here or an issue there. But to really create change in the world, you have to change the way people view their interactions with their fellow man. But, you know, I get so so deeply involved in this stuff... Sometimes I pop my head out, and the whole world is going crazy, and there's all these current events going on, and I missed half of them because I've been in here in my little time warp. And there's been a lot of stuff happening in the world of politics lately, and I brought a guest in today to talk about all this stuff with... He's been involved in libertarian politics for quite some time, having managed the campaign of Ed Thompson for Wisconsin governor in 2002, before moving on to become a legislative aide for an obscure Republican congressman from Texas that my listeners may be familiar with by the name of Ron Paul. He is currently a writer at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, as well as over at his own website, adamdick.com. I'm Dick. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty Podcast. Oh, good to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and, and thanks for coming on the show today. I greatly appreciate your time. And, you know, one thing I always like to ask my guests, at least my libertarian guests, is when or how did you first become interested in libertarian ideas overall? You know, how did you first stumble upon all this crazy stuff? Or, or you know, did you just pop out of the womb as a fiery
2: libertarian? That might be pretty close. Cool, I can remember I had pretty libertarian ideas and uh, I could probably thank my, my dad a fair bit for that. He was I think it was even before I was born, he was mayor of the town I grew up in and he had on a shelf in our study uh low line land books and I started reading those in middle school and by the time i finished my freshman year of high school I'd read every one of them. So uh, that's what gave me the start and uh, later I read more by uh, you know economics of one lesson and then into books by other authors, Murray Rothbard, Ludwig von Mises, etc. You know, fiction was also always a, a big influence on me, um, with authors like George Orwell and Juan Kundera and uh, Franz Kafka, they had some very interesting critiques of government and, uh, you know, representations of how free people can be. So uh, that's kind of of the background a lot of it through, uh, through literature and, uh, and reading economics.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned fiction works because I think before I even really actively thought about this stuff or really thought about things in political terms, you know, I was a big Robert Heinlein fan and I used to love his books. And I, I think a lot of that message, even though maybe I wasn't making the uh, in the direct connection at the time, but a lot of that message of, you know, the dangers of power and, and tyranny and that kind of thing definitely seeped through and then kind of became more obvious to me when I actually became more actively involved in politics and really thinking about things in those terms. So how did you take that interest and turn that into actively working in politics? You know, you you managed the campaign of Ed Thompson in Wisconsin, later working for Ron Paul. So how did you get your hands dirty and get wrapped up in all this political stuff?
2: Well, you know, Ed Thompson was a a Libertarian Party candidate when he ran for governor in 2002. And that was really my my first entry into into activity in Libertarian ideas was through the party. Uh, But it was much earlier. When I was in high school, I was actually the secretary of the Bexar County Libertarian Party in Texas. And I found out about it, I was listening to a, a talk show I, I liked uh, with Carl Wigglesworth down there, who is a libertarian leaning talk show host for many years in San Antonio. He had Diane Tilcher, who was, I believe, the county chair back then, on the show when I was listening to her, and I was amazed that I was agreeing with so many things she said. You know, these are the kind of things that I believe, but I found very few people who actually, you know, followed through on them. And that's what got me got me involved in actual activism. And, uh, you know, a few years later, a couple of years later in 1988, Ron Hall was running for president. And I was a big supporter of his campaign. And uh, though I was too young to drive, my mom drove me and a friend down to a uh, speech Dr. Paul gave in San Antonio that year. And uh, that really helped push me forward. Four years later, I took the summer after my freshman year in college and uh, the first semester of my second year off and uh, worked for Andre Maru, who was a 1992 presidential candidate of the Libertarians. And I uh, spent six months, uh, first two months doing advanced work for him, uh, next two months traveling with the candidate, and the final two months doing uh, scheduling and media. So that's that's where my my activism all began. It was, it was within the libertarian party. And then back on college was a libertarian group I helped run.
1: What did you take away from your involvement in politics? I mean, especially the Thompson campaign, he actually ran a pretty successful campaign for for a libertarian by our standards anyway, uh, achieving over 10% of the vote in Wisconsin, which is pretty unheard of for, for libertarians, especially a decade ago before anyone was talking about this stuff. So, you know, I'm wondering what what kind of message do you have for libertarians looking to get more active in politics or or that kind of thing? What what kind of takeaways did you get from from kind of being right there in the middle of all of it?
2: Well, one thing is if you're if you're going to run as a, as libertarian party candidate, you know you can definitely use it as a means to get the message out. But if you want to win, you either have to run for something really small, like a local office, or you've got to have some sort of way of gaining the name recognition and, and uh, popularity you know, needed to do well. Now, Ed Thompson, he, he had been mayor of uh, Tomah, Wisconsin, and uh, he was very popular in, in those two counties where he grew up and where his business was. You know, He ran a supper club in Tomah, Wisconsin that led him to, to meet a lot of people and be really well-known in the area as well. But he was also the younger brother of the former governor, uh, Tommy Thompson. So he had a lot of things that gave him that push in the campaign at the beginning, you know, and then with a lot of hard work, we were able to build it. And uh, by election day, you know, there were more than twice the number of people who voted for him, would have voted for him if they thought he could win. So even with a strong campaign and a high notoriety, um, actually better ratings of popularity than the other candidates, his positives compared to his negatives, he still couldn't overcome that wasted vote syndrome. You know, that ended up reducing his total by half. Uh, The other thing that really hit him was he was excluded from half of the statewide debates. And uh, we did polling after the first debate that showed that people who saw that debate were much more likely to support Ed Thompson uh, than people who hadn't seen it. So he was uh, prevented from having more of that boost from later debates. And uh, that's something that Ed had been warned about by the uh, Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura, when they met before Ed announced his candidacy, Jesse told him the thing that really pushed him into winning that election. One of the main contributors was that he was in all the debates, and each time he was in a debate, just like what and with Ed, his poll numbers went up. So I, you know, I warn you that if you're running as a Libertarian Party candidate, you know, run for a race you can win, unless you've got a, a you know, hot of name recognition, a lot of people liking you, willing to work for you, or a lot of money to pay to get your message out. Run for a small office, you know, mayor of a small town, school board, something like that, to build to build your recognition, or do other things to build your notoriety. Uh, but the other thing I'd say, too, is be ready for the dirty tricks. Um, there are ballot access rules to keep you out. There's... Uh, You know, there's excluding you from debate. There's all kinds of things that can be done to hurt a third-party candidate. And, you know, one of the things that I addressed just recently is even now they're misrepresenting Ed's campaign. The Associated Press last week ran an article saying that Ed cost the Republican governor that he'd run against the election, which which we did polling right after the election that showed that's absolutely false. Ed drew votes away from the Republican and Democrat equally in that race. And if Ed hadn't been in the race, the Democrats still would have beat the incumbent Republican, but just by even a higher percentage of the vote.
1: Oh, it's kind of this catch twenty two they use to scapegoat sort of libertarians. They say your presence here is is stealing votes away from people, as if the Democrats and Republicans already own the votes for them to call them stealing but you know so then they use that kind of message to people and say well you can't listen to these guys because yeah they might have some good points but they're just not going to win so you're wasting your vote and then once the kind of whatever vote totals come in they say look look all he did here was steal votes away from the republican look what these guys did it's it's like the same thing they did with Ralph Nader they said oh only if this Nader guy wasn't here you know the Al Gore would have won and the world would be great and there would be no Iraq war and you know everything would be wonderful so that it's kind of funny how mm-hmm. they keep doing that and you know how you said with Ed Thompson. You know so many people would have voted for him if only they thought he could win. And it's it's kind of the exact same thing I noticed with a lot of Ron Paul fans during his two elections. I had so many people that I had great conversations with that you know after an hour or two of talking to him, I'm thinking, hey, I got these guys hook, line, and sinker. They agree with everything I'm saying. They love Ron Paul's positions, but ultimately half those conversations would end with. Yeah, but he's just not going to win, so <laughs> dot, 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 I'm going to vote for fill-in-the-blank, Romney or McCain or one of these guys that has a chance because we don't want to quote-unquote waste our vote. And that that just seems to be one of the problems with whether you're running as a libertarian on that ticket or even just a principal libertarian as Ron Paul was within that bigger system, within the Republican Party. So this this seems like one of the kind of biggest sort of false messages for us to counter, I guess, Wouldn't wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, it takes uh, it takes a lot of work, and it can take a lot of money. You know, in Ed's campaign, we spent half a million, but the other candidates each spent millions and millions of dollars. Um, but when people knew Ed, they voted for him, and we showed that in the county he grew up in, and the neighboring county where he, he lived most of his, much of his life as an adult and ran his business, he won those two counties. So, uh, you know, if you can get people to know you, and trust you and understand where you're coming from like ed was able to do in those two areas he lived you can win and i think ron paul shows that as well just after the spurs won the uh, national championship in basketball this month the uh david bowes the executive vice president of the cato institute wrote an interesting article where he compared dr paul to the san antonio spurs and uh what he was saying was that Dr. Paul had won three times entry into the House of Representatives, you know, as a non-incumbent coming in fresh. Nobody else has ever done that before. Dr. Paul won a special election in 1976, lost re-election, then won against that incumbent in 78, and then he was out of Congress from 1984 until 1996. He won re-entry, and, and something I wrote about over at the Ron Paul Institute, was just how difficult that race was in 1996. Dr. Paul had to basically win three elections, each of which were tough. In the primary, he had to beat the Republican nominee from two years earlier. So first, Dr. Paul had to get more votes than him. And then that put Dr. Paul in a runoff with the incumbent representatives who had been elected four times as a Democrat. And it switched over to the Republican Party, been given a seat on the Ways and Means Committee, and been given the support of virtually everybody in the Republican Party establishment. Dr. Paul then beat him in the runoff election. And now Dr. Paul had to go into the general election, in which he had to defeat the Democrat nominee. And this is in a district that for you know, the last four times had elected a Democrat to the House of Representatives. And Dr. Paul won. He won all three races. And the key to that was kind of similar to the key to Ed winning his two counties. And that is that people knew and trusted Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul had delivered over 4,000 babies in an obstetrics practice centered from the district. And, uh, he had, he had built trust over time with people seeing he said what he believed and he did what he said. He also, you know, wore out his shoes with heavy campaigning. What I've heard from people in the district, you know, when I was working for him and even before, was people would say, you know, I don't agree with Dr. Paul on everything, but I know that he's doing what he thinks is right, and I trust him. So the the key to Dr. Paul winning was not that he lived in some magical libertarian district down in Texas. He didn't. The key was that he was honest. And people trusted him and they thought he had their best interests in mind and he could explain his libertarian positions to people so that they, so that they would have faith in him.
1: That speaks to what you were saying earlier, you know, talking about advice to libertarians. And and one of those things you said was how, you know, running on the local level, you know, local committee or mayor for your town or something like that, because that's when you can kind of, you have the ability to do what Dr. Paul did. You have the ability to literally, well, maybe not do what he did, maybe not deliver 4,000 babies, but, you know, you have the ability to go around your town and speak to people one-on-one. And, and maybe a lot of those people are people you've known for 10, 20 years or something like that. And you can actually develop a personal relationship to the point that even if they don't necessarily buy into the entire quote-unquote libertarian philosophy they will know you as a person and, and you know that is something that's an advantage that the, the kind of the big money guys the establishment players will never have because i'm pretty sure most of those guys don't go around knocking door to door and wearing out their own shoes like dr ball did
2: right you can absolutely do it and uh it's you know dr paul even said that he doesn't believe that it's uh it's only in the Republican Party or, or even the Libertarian Party that you can do it. You know, Dr. Paul said that uh, you know when he first was uh, planning to run for uh, for Congress, he asked the advice of uh, Larry McDonald, who was in the House of Representatives and had some similar views to Dr. Paul. You know what his advice was, and he served in the House as a Democrat, and his advice was, you know, run in the party that's dominant where you live if you want to be in Congress and you're in a, in a heavily Democratic district, well, the way to be there is to run as a Democrat. You know, and there, if you're running as a Democrat, you might, you might focus on some issues differently than you would as a Republican. You know, in a heavy Republican district, you might talk more about guns and taxes. In a heavily uh, Democrat district, you might talk more about war and civil liberties. But there's a potential for a person with libertarian ideas to do well in both districts.
1: And the key there is to maintain that kind of consistent philosophical position, regardless of what party label you've you've attached to yourself or what have you, because I think it's pretty clear just how you mentioned there, one of Dr. Paul's, the people he had to face in that, that runoff, he switched over from Democrat to Republican, probably because it just seemed more politically convenient. So they certainly don't have much principles based on the party they choose. So there's no reason that anybody else really should, as long as they can maintain a consistent message. Now you might, might talk about some issues more than another or frame things in a certain way, but you can develop You can deliver the libertarian message through any political party, through no political party, and you can do it consistently, you can do that by catering your message, not changing your message. And that, that's something that Dr. Paul, I think, was always really good at, at catering his message to certain audiences. But, you know, that's that's far different from literally changing his views. He would be very consistent in his actual views uh, while doing so. I thought, I've always thought, thought that Dr. Paul was so great at that, really being able to speak. And I think that speaks to why I had so much success in speaking to progressives. I mean, I live out here in California. The vast majority of people I encounter are of that bent, but I was able to kind of get a lot of those people talking about things just through his sort of view, anti-corporatism, um, you know, talking about healthcare and how the free market can actually get people more healthcare and that sort of thing. So it's really a lot about knowing your audience, whether you're running for office or just trying to convince people of your philosophy, knowing your audience is definitely a huge part of that. Um, and on the subject of politics, there's been some pretty interesting developments, I'd say, lately that you've written about over at Ron Paul Institute, the most notable of which is, of course, the defeat of Eric Cantor, who has been a big-time neocon. I think many people saw him as as the next speaker of the house, uh, a big-time Ron Paul hater, for, for lack of a better word, I guess. So what can you tell us about this guy, Eric Cantor, for people that aren't familiar with him, and what exactly happened there? Nobody seemed to see this coming. David Bratt has not won his seat yet, but how did he lose his primary to David Bratt, this guy nobody had even
2: heard of? What exactly happened there? Well, I can can definitely tell you that that, uh, Representative Cantor, somebody that the Ron Paul Institute has been paying attention to quite a bit over the last year, and he's earned our interest because of his very consistent record on war. Eric Cantor is for war with everybody. War with Syria, war with Iran, war in Ukraine war anywhere, and the day after uh, after his defeat, I put up an article where we can we compiled together some of the links to the various coverage we'd given of Eric Cantor and his pursuit of war all over all over the world. And uh, you know, one of the things that he, he did in in these last few months uh, in Congress was back in February, he gave a speech. Titled "An America That Leads" at the Virginia Military Institute, in which he did he proposed re, you know increasing U.S. intervention in all these various countries, and couched it all in terms that this is what George Washington would want us to do. Well, anybody who who knows much about George Washington would know that George Washington gave a warning to the American people as he was leaving office in his farewell address to avoid this foreign interventionism. A few years later, when Jefferson came into office, Jefferson succinctly rephrased this kind of Washington credo as peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. So Cancer had gotten pretty far off from the, you know, American founding principles. The biggest probably thing that people were upset with in this district was was something that Grant that did batch on and that is that Eric Cantor was a, a big pusher of crony capitalism you know the merger of big business with big government and that's something that uh, as pointed out by a good liberal writer uh, John Nichols who wrote good things about both Ed Thompson and, and Ron Paul in their campaigns John Nichols points out that this was something that brat hit on over and over again in the campaign that Eric Cantor was pushing this merger of big government and big business and phony capitalism and i think that probably was a significant factor in his loss you know another thing that some republicans are are saying is they're blaming that maybe some democrats even came over and uh and voted for Brat. now i don't i don't know if that's true but how dare they yeah but but if, (laughs) if if they did it was probably because they saw Cancer is just kind of an example of the worst of the worst. Um, because if they if they went over and voted in the Republican primary, that meant they had to give up the ability to uh, you know vote for anybody in the Democratic primary. So it's a pretty big step to take.
1: Yeah, well, these Republican and Democrat politicians, they seem to switch sides all the time whenever it's convenient. So I don't see any reason the voter <laughs> the voters shouldn't do the same thing. And oh, they sure. have somebody they really want to get out of there like like Eric Cantor and it's, it's interesting you mentioned kind of his uh, David Bratt's anti-corporatist message because that's not something you see in the mainstream analysis of this at all you know a couple of the more mainstream articles I've read about this they always they keep pointing to the immigration issue you know Bratt was against immigration reform or I guess the way Cantor was is for immigration reform uh, he's he made that an issue but that's pretty much what they keep pointing to uh, they don't mention the anti-corporatist stuff in the mainstream media We're how that works and I also saw that there was something like 19,000 new primary voters in this election that hadn't even voted in primaries before so to me maybe he got a lot of Democrats jumping over but it seems really like a lot of people that maybe weren't even that politically active at all before he was able to get out sure. and get, I don't know, I don't know how many people were voting for Brad or how many people were voting against Cantor, but either way, mm-hmm. enough people got interested in this thing to get off their butts and, and get out there. So it really is a fascinating case. It doesn't seem like something that the neocons or the the mainstream Republicans, whatever you want to call them, saw coming at all.
2: Sure, and Democrats coming over can affect elections. I know, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, exit polling for Dr. Paul back in 2012 when he ran in Iowa and New Hampshire, you know he was doing very well among voters that aren't your typical Republican voters. He was doing very well among the young voters, you know, people under 35 or so. He was doing very well among the voters in the Republican primary who said they weren't religious or didn't or didn't have a didn't belong in an organized religion. He was doing very well among Republican people when they were voting in the Republican primaries who said that they weren't for abortion being illegal. Now, you know, not even all those those views may line up with Dr. Paul's own views, but they're views that, that you typically associate more with the Democrat Party and, and ages that you typically associate with the Democrat Party. But Dr. Paul was bringing those people in the vote. And then in some ways with Eric Cantor, you might have the exact reverse effect You know, Dr. Paul was so appealing in his opposition to war, his opposition to the crony capitalism, his opposition to the increased infringements on civil liberties, and then um, that he brought in these voters who, if they had voted, maybe they more likely would have voted Democrat, or they wouldn't have voted at all. And on the other side, you have Eric Cantor, who is kind of the anti-Ron Paul. On all those things that Dr. Paul was so good at, Eric Cantor was so bad that he drew the voters in against
1: him. It's amazing how being consistent can unite people on either side. You know, Dr. Ron Paul united a lot of people that were pro-freedom and pro-peace because he was so consistent with that message. It looks like Eric Cantor has united people with his very consistent pro-war you know anti-peace message shows. It's, mm-hmm. it's funny how all that works out uh you know another guy i want to talk about we, it's not that often libertarians end up celebrating the victory of an incumbent but one guy <laughs> recently who's actually an rpi ron paul institute advisor he survived a primary attempt and that is congressman walter jones so what can you tell us about congressman walter jones as well as the attempt to primary him out of office that failed
2: So walter jones uh he was one of the uh members who is closest with, uh, with Dr. Paul, a friend of his in the House of Representatives, and still a friend. Uh, you know, up there with him, you could think, uh, Representative Jimmy Duncan from Tennessee, he's more of a, you know, old, right, traditional Republican. And Walter Jones is, is a great man. He, he's, not, he's not Dr. Paul. He has some views that are different, but he's very strong on a lot of these issues, especially anti-war. He's been leading the crusade against keeping the troops in Afghanistan. And, uh, along with, uh, Representative Jim McGovern, they're two of the lead voices on that. And they're trying to, you know, Walter Jones has beaten on the floor repeatedly for not extending the stay of the troops another 10 years, uh, getting them out of there and refocusing on America and not remaking the world. At the same time, Walter Jones, you know, like Dr. Paul, he has a, he has a great philosophy of how he approaches voting. Um, just before the primary, there was an Associated Press article where I'll, I'll quote him. Walter Jones explains, You vote your conscience first, your constituents second, and your party third. I'm not a puppet, never have been a puppet. I'm doing what I think is right based on the information I have before me. And that's that's Walter Jones. And, you know, one of the things that turned him, he originally supported the Iraq war, one of the things that turned him against it, was the information before him. He supports he represents a, a large number of military people with Camp Lejeune and another installation in this district. And he was seeing these fighters coming back with legs missing, arms missing or, or dead. And, uh, he was writing letters to family members of the deceased soldiers. And, you know, he just came to the conclusion that this, this is not the right thing to do. The wars need to end. And, uh, you know, because, because of that, you know, he, he was targeted, largely because of his opposition to these non-defensive wars that the United States has been in. He was targeted with huge amounts of money flowing in through special interest groups, and Walter Jones wasn't able to meet it financially at all. He was outspent by many factors, but, uh, but nonetheless, he was able to pull out a, a victory in the race, and he'll be back next Congress.
1: I think Walter Jones is such an interesting case because it's not really that often that you can see live a congressman's views sort of change over time because Walter Jones, he was the freedom fries guy. You know, he was the guy that that caused this whole freedom fries fracas back when, uh, you know, France didn't want to support the Iraq war and there was a lot of sort of jingoist uh, patriotic mentality against France at that time. So it's very far that he's come from that position, the point where he he was actually chastising another country for not participating in this war. And now he's one of the most vocal anti-war congressmen out there. So it really is a fascinating case. It's not that often that you see a congressman, you know, change their position. Well, you, you do see them change their positions a lot, but it's not often that you see them do it in a very natural, principled way. And Walter Jones openly denounces his former self when he speaks at, about how he was duped into supporting these wars. And I think it's kind of representative of how a lot of people feel. You know, a lot of people are duped into supporting wars. They're taught that these wars are in order to protect them, to keep them safe. And, and for that reason, they often support them, not really thinking about the wider consequences of the wars or, or the real motives behind them. And that's certainly something that Walter Jones has taken the time to do, and it really is uh, an amazing thing to see. And I'm happy to see his success paying off, even despite the fact that living in a heavy military district, and uh, where that's a lot of his constituency, he is still able to maintain this kind of newfound over the last few years anti-war position, and still able to battle off the big money of the establishment and stay in there. So it really is a couple cases here between Walter Jones and Eric Cantor's loss, really is to show you that even though it might get frustrating at times. You know, you might see Ron Paul get 89 seconds in a debate and say, screw politics, there's just no point. But, you know, if you educate enough people and you get enough people talking about things, you can actually make a difference.
2: Walter Jones, another thing is he does work with Democrats. on. This. I might have misspoke spoken the other representative's name as uh, Representative Jim McGovern uh, from from Massachusetts doctor, that uh, Walter Jones worked with on the Afghanistan in in the Afghanistan war. And he's also co- co-sponsored a a bill put out by another Democrat, Representative Barbara Lee, that would would end the Afghanistan war. So like Dr. Paul did, working with, you know, Dennis Kucinich, uh, who's a a board member of of the Ron Paul Institute now, on uh, anti-war and anti-Patriot Act stuff, and working with Representative Barney Frank on decriminalizing marijuana, and, you know, working with uh, Representative Bernie Sanders uh, on uh, transparency at the Federal Reserve, Dr. Paul was willing to work with the Democrats and Independents in in the House on uh, advancing uh, pro-freedom legislation. And Walter Jones is the same way.
1: I think another lesson that libertarians can take into politics, the thing where you're not supposed to jump the aisle or any of that stuff, you know, Walter Jones, Congressman Paul, these guys, they're... They're not necessarily seen as, you know, uh, you know compromisers in the traditional sense. Usually when we see compromise, it's because the two parties are coming together to compromise and screw us all over. But in the case of Dr. Paul, Walter Jones, they will compromise while maintaining their principle. They're not compromising anything. They're just uniting with people that share a similar principle on a certain subject to advance that agenda when it comes to winding down the war on drugs, you know, fighting the Federal Reserve, winding down war, that kind of thing. One more thing that you mentioned there that I do want to get your thoughts on Before we go, it's something you write about a lot, and that is the war on drugs, more specifically, marijuana legalization. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on this sweeping legalization movement we've seen here? It started out here in California before I even lived here in 96, when the first state to legalize medical marijuana anyway. And now we're seeing states even legalize marijuana for recreational use. So how do you see this going forward? And, you know, how do you see this even expanding outside the United States? I know you got the chance to give a speech in Guatemala about Marijuana legalization. So, what kind of response have you seen not only in, in this country but also in your experience overseas?
2: Yes, back in May of last year, I, I traveled to uh, Guatemala City speak at the University uh, of Jacques uh, Francisco Martín, and largely about the, the war on drugs. And uh, Guatemala is a country that, that's been hurt by the U.S. war on drugs in a, in a way different uh, than the U.S. because it's a, it's a transit country for uh, drugs coming from the south to the north, largely for sale in the United States. And uh, that's created a lot of trouble there with the illegal transit of the the drugs through their country. Problems which, like the gang problems in the United States and uh, other problems in the U.S. associated with the drug war, would be ended if we had drugs legalized here. But uh, what I said back then and what I see coming to fruition now is that the move in the various states, starting, like you said, with California, and now up to 22 states that have medical marijuana and two with legal marijuana generally, is that the U.S. government will at some point just have to throw up its hands and say, we can't stop this. Without the assistance of local police, local prosecutors, and their resources, you know, the federal government can do raids here and there, against medical marijuana and recreational marijuana vendors and so forth, but they really can't stop it. It's beyond their control. And I think we're seeing the acceptance of that with the vote earlier this month in the House of Representatives on two amendments to the Judiciary Appropriations Bill. Uh, The House passed, with a majority vote, amendments to say that the U.S. government should not interfere with the growing distribution or doing anything with industrial hemp in all the states that have passed industrial hemp legislation, and it passed a very similar bill saying the same thing about the 22 states that have adopted medical marijuana legislation, basically saying the U.S. government should keep out of it. If people are complying with those state laws regarding hemp and medical marijuana, the federal government should keep out, and that is a huge step back in the war on drugs, probably the biggest rollback of the war on drugs since Nixon declared the war in the early 1970s. Um, and before that, there have been some other incremental steps back in the war on drugs that I saw in the last few years that I was uh, working for Dr. Paul. The increased penalties for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine that were adopted in the 1980s were rolled back so that they're still higher. But a lot closer to the powder penalties, uh, powder cocaine penalties during that time. Also, the, uh, disallowing of student financial aid for, um, people who had drug convictions was eliminated for people who had drug convictions previous to, uh, to going to college. And, uh, you know, that expands the program some, but it was a very unfair exclusion because people could have convictions for other things and not be excluded from the financial aid. So it was part of the drug war. And uh, another thing they did was they finally, after 17 years, allowed the District of Columbia to implement its medical marijuana program, which was adopted not too far distant in time from uh, that original one in California, but the Congress for 17 years had prevented D.C. from implementing it, and it's being implemented now. So you take those three... Um, small rollbacks, and then you add this major rollback that the House voted for, and we'll see what the Senate does in the war on drugs, and, and you're seeing that the uh, that the federal government is throwing up its hands to some degree and saying we give up. Now, now the catch is going to be beyond these kind of easier steps. Uh, you know, for example, marijuana is an easier step for two reasons. First of all, people understand generally that marijuana is is not no more dangerous than alcohol or cigarettes. It's not seen as a threat the way that, say, cocaine or opium is. And secondly, marijuana is the most used illegal drug. So, so many people know somebody who has used or does use marijuana, even for medical reasons. So, it's a lot easier to roll back the war on marijuana. The interesting thing to see is that they get the next step and start rolling back the war on other drugs. And, uh, and hopefully, hopefully we will see that happen. Uh, but for marijuana, what I predict is it's going to be like alcohol is now. You know, different states are going to have varying rules on, on alcohol. You know, even Texas, just in November of last year, there were a couple of counties here in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex where I live, a couple of towns, cities. You know, each one has over 100,000 people in it. There are significant cities that uh, eliminated their, their dry laws, you know, that prevented a lot of sales of alcohol in those cities. So, you know, even now, all these decades after the end of prohibition on alcohol, there's still kind of a patchwork quilt of uh, alcohol regulations of varying degrees. And if you look back just a few decades, you know, mm-hmm. 1977, when smoking and the Bandit came out, you know, people were making, you know, they were making movies about running alcohol across state lines. and you know i guess you know maybe maybe in a year or two we're going to see you know the new smoking in the bandit where they're they're running marijuana from uh from colorado to texas or something but uh
1: That sounds like a good pitch—a Smokey and the Bandit sequel where they're—they're maybe they're in Colorado trying to take it over somewhere else.
2: Exactly.
1: (laughs) We we might have to get together on that after the show. Uh, I I do call myself fifty percent owner of that pitch, just just for the record. It's on air here. Uh, But Adam, it really is uh, a pleasure talking to you today, and, and it's great to see that you know, this war on drugs is going in the right direction. And that is the direction backwards, winding down. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I can I can only imagine what it's going to be like 20 or 30 years from now as we're able to more effectively communicate why it's just plain wrong to throw people in jail for possessing a certain plant or a certain substance or what have you. And you people over at Ron Paul Institute are really helping in that. You are an anti-war institute, but one of the biggest wars going right now is this war on drugs, the war against free people that are harming no one. So I'm really glad you guys focus on that topic as well as kind of the wars abroad Uh, Adam, i really do appreciate you once again coming on the show today before i let you go why don't you take a minute to plug everything you're doing um where can people get in touch with you where can people find all your writing social media and all that stuff
2: all right well most of my writings are at the uh, ron paul institute org. you can contact the institute it has a contact page on there and uh I have a few writings on AdamDick.com as well, but mainly that's the Ron Paul Institute stuff. So if you want to follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you can find that at AdamDick.com, the link to uh, to follow me there.
1: That's Adam Dick. Thanks again for coming on the show today. Be sure to check out his work, and we'll talk to you again soon. Adam, thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. We'll be back after a
0: little break. You want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to youth through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash meetronpaul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the Liberty Movement moving.
1: Hey guys, Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you The Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of The Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them every Monday we have our longest running feature Mondays with Murray named after the great libertarian Murray Rothbard where we'll examine an article or an excerpt from his works and help convey his view along with our little spin as well we wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LinesOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily.
0: Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. Set Money Free. A special foreword written by Ron Paul. Everything you need to know about the Federal Reserve in less than 200 pages. Available this 4th of July. Chris Rossini's Set money free. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare.
1: Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Adam Dick. He was certainly great to speak with, and it's interesting to hear his perspective on the Eric Cantor loss, on Walter Jones' victory, because I guarantee you, there were not a lot of headlines out there in the mainstream media saying anti-corporatist David Batt <laughs> defeats Eric Cantor. Or anti-war congressman Walter Jones victorious due to his anti-war stance. You don't see that kind of analysis in the mainstream where they're going to try to kind of push these issues underneath the table. The only headline I did see that sort of touted Walter Jones' anti-war credentials was who to guess it from antiwar.com where it says anti-war representative walter jones beats neocon backed gop rival it's kind of places like that places that mostly libertarians and anti-war folks go that's the only place you're going to see that kind of analysis or over here at Lions of liberty or on this show when i have a great guy like adam dick on the show to discuss this stuff my conversation with adam really highlights how we can use politics in many ways because it upsets me when people when other libertarians especially try to say oh libertarians should just reject politics you're not going to get anywhere you can't defeat the system you know they might get upset by a few dirty tricks that were played at a caucus or when someone got screwed out of debate time like ron Paul did on so many occasions The fact is, politics is where this conversation happens, and it's how change is made. Even if you're opposed to democracy as a system of government, as I certainly am. Even if you're an anarchist, you don't believe in any government at all. It doesn't change the fact that this is the present system. It won't go away just by ignoring it. It will only change by encouraging good people like Dr. Ron Paul, like Walter Jones, like yourself, perhaps, to get involved and keep the ideas of liberty flowing in the conscience of the public. And it's not just an exercise in philosophy. It's not just changing people's hearts and minds. You can really change things on the ground. As we talked about the war on drugs, the marijuana movement, it started here. In California, with medical marijuana reform in 1996. How was that accomplished? Well, it was done politically. It was done by a bunch of activists that went out, got signatures, got it on the ballot, and made things happen. The same thing people did in Colorado to make marijuana legal there. In Washington, the same thing. Over half the states in the union have legalized marijuana, at least for medical purposes this stuff isn't just happening. It's happening due to political activity. And as much as there might be dirty tricks that are played, especially against people that have principal positions, that's not a reason to run away from the system. That's a reason to run even harder towards it and say, uh, 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 that's not how things are going to work because we believe in liberty and we're going to get more people to believe in liberty and we're going to change some things. I know it's a daunting task, folks, but this stuff doesn't happen overnight. Marijuana reform didn't happen overnight. It happened over the course of the last 20 years or so, and it's still happening. Point is, through all of this, you gotta maintain consistency. You gotta maintain principle. And that's something that the fine folks at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity are doing. Don't forget, if you wanna donate over to the Ron Paul Institute, they are a nonprofit organization and your donation will be tax deductible. So why not think about going over there, tossing a little money their way to keep these ideas out there in the public to keep the right headlines coming? And as a little bonus, it just decreases the amount the feds are going to take out of your paycheck. So it's a win-win-win. Because we need to keep liberty voices strong out there. And why is that, you ask? Because the greater the overall voice of liberty is in the public, in the political arena, the easier it's going to be. For my listeners to do as I ask and to continue to live
0: long
1: and live free.